Welcome to the Critical Thinking Initiative podcast. We bring you research-driven solutions to critical thinking education. Why? Because as Bertrand Russell said, most people would sooner die than think. In fact, they do so. And now your hosts, Steve Perlman and Dave Carrillo. Hey, welcome back to the Critical Thinking Initiative podcast. I'm Steve Perlman. I'm Dave Carrillo. First thing we want to say is we just got back from the Four Cs Conference. For those of you outside the comp world, that's the Conference on College Composition and Communication. And it was a real pleasure to meet some of our listeners there who, who were able to come up to us and let us know that they've been listening to the podcast. We got a real kick out of that because we record these things and send them off into the inter-ether. And it's kind of a, a kick to meet some people who've received some of it and get some feedback and I think a lot of encouragement for continuing to do what we're doing. But for those of you who are there and approached us, we really appreciate it. And we hope that as we get out into the world more, more people will take the opportunity to introduce themselves, let us know what they're thinking about what we're doing, and give us some feedback on it, share any ideas you have. And you don't have to wait till we're at a conference in person to do that. You can also reach out otherwise. Yeah, no, we always enjoy uh, the emails that our, our listeners send us. It is always a great feeling to be able to have uh you walk up to us and say hey we 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 know you we we hear you on the interwebs we appreciate your podcast that kind of thing the seas conference was the first sort of concentrated dose of of that kind of recognition yeah we look at the numbers going up on the podcast and how many listeners we have but uh, those are just numbers on an interweb site and it's great instead to actually know that there some of those numbers are actual human beings so today's podcast actually comes from listeners Because I don't think we've ever gotten quite as many emails from listeners about a single article as with this one, which is curious. It's not a really highly controversial one. It's just a really interesting article. But a lot of listeners reached out to us asking us what we thought about this particular article. It was it would appeared in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and we'll link to it on the site. The title is No Textbooks, No Lectures, and No Right Answers. Is This What Higher Education Needs? by Beth McMurtry. And it's about the X-Lab that they've developed at James Madison University. For those not familiar with what these X-Labs are, they are frequently emerging now or more frequently emerging now. And what they are is they're sort of technological labs as well as, or they can be more liberal artsy kind of spaces where students are confronted with some wicked problems and given the space to work through those problems in different ways. So it's sort of a place for or a construct for what we can loosely refer to as project-based learning or problem-based learning. And they're typically interdisciplinary and they're typically designed around the idea of fostering innovation and growth and critical thinking and so on and so forth. Yeah, which is which is what the, the title sort of entails here. Uh, these kinds of labs... In that they are constructed around the premise of problem or project-based learning, require there to be a more open in learning environment, a learning environment that isn't necessarily constructed around, uh, you know, chapters in a textbook, and that generally just pushes students out into this sort of open realm of, of a particular problem or project and asks that they learn themselves how to come to some sort of conclusion. 
And that's something that this article talks about early on in a way to sort of represent what the X Lab is about at JMU. It's kind of interesting, actually, though, that a lot of people reached out. I guess this no, that- particular article got some good mention in the Chronicle, but it's by far not the first X Lab that has existed in the country. It just kind of got some recognition for what they're doing, which is cool. Right. But it's interesting that so many people sort of locked onto this particular article about it. Right. Well, I'm actually very happy that so many of our listeners emailed this article to us because, you know, what, or what we want to do here is we want to give you an overview of the article, but then, you know, we wanted to annotate it a bit. We see some things that the article is talking about that we feel like we we would want you to know more about. And we actually have some questions uh, about this X Lab and uh, questions for the, those folks who are running it and would love to reach out to them at some point. So what this X Lab is, is working towards is, is what McMurtry sort of uh, writes earlier on. When she poses these kinds of questions here, you know, how do you develop a course in which students learn to be innovative? What is the role of the instructor if he no longer is the authority in the classroom? How do you evaluate students when there is no right answer? And what is innovation anyhow? And so these kinds of questions permeate this sort of X-Lab environment. There are no tests and there are no textbooks. And I just, I want to note, I love that it's called an X-Lab. And I think just putting X in front of things is such a brilliant way to make it sound intriguing. I, I wonder about that. They don't talk anything at all about that in the article, right? But it doesn't have the same sort of ring to it if it's like the, I don't know, the, the M-Lab or something like that. Well, right. I mean, that's, I want to have- The D-Lab sounds like people are just not, I don't know, that doesn't have any like really kind of resonance either. Well, like, first of all, I want to have, I'm going to put, I'm going to call my office the X office from now on. I don't, I'm not going to help you make that stick. You can- you I'm going to, I'm going to put it on try. my office. X office. Try. I, I, I wholeheartedly support that. I wonder why it's not a Q-Lab. I, I don't know. That's a good question. Right. Like, and there are a couple other letters that can probably, you know, throw punches with the letter X. There's no way R could hang with this. No, R can't uh, hang with R this. lab. R That's can't insane. hang with X. Q can hang with X. Q could hang Z right? sort of maybe. Maybe. So just to give you an overview of what's going on here, in, in terms of the article, students are presented with any number of, as Steve mentioned before, wicked problems. So in the article, uh, one, the first example we get is this idea uh, where uh, you know one of the students in this, this lab are, is given the problem to solve homelessness in the in the local community, and that kind of problem, among others, is is what students spend their semester doing. And there's no real conclusion at the end of this, right? I, you know, a, lo- a lot of these X lab type things, and this particular X lab can just as you know well have a project that does help solve homelessness in the community as it does not solve anything at all. Students could potentially go through the whole semester and then bomb at the end, not necessarily because they weren't doing any work, but because that's the nature of this kind of education. The student is not going to solve homelessness, and nor is that really the intention. No, it's not the intention. Homelessness is not going to be totally resolved in that community as a result of this student's effort. This is something that we would want to kind of delineate in, you know, or at least categorize in, in this particular article in this lab. There are these problems like, solve homelessness in the community, which is hell of a messy problem anywhere. But then there are also problems like design a drone or that does certain things. It's interesting that you bring that up because, yeah, I don't think the student is necessarily going to solve homelessness, but there are projects 
mentioned in this article where there's a much more concrete end to it. Yeah. Which bears at least mentioning in terms of how we, you know, go through this article. And I think at the outset, what we want to say, first of all, is that in a loose way, because so many listeners reached out to us asking sort of what we thought about this, in a loose way, we want to say that we we think this is great on a lot of levels. Yeah. And there should be more of this kind of experiential, messy learning, problem-based learning, project-based learning going on in education without question at all. So thumbs up to JMU and their XLab and everything that we're going to... We are certainly going to put it through some of our thinking process here about it and raise some questions, but these are smaller questions within a broader stroke of saying thumbs up to this kind of thing. Yeah, and not just because like this exists, but if you read the article, I mean, this exists in a fairly expansive and comprehensive way. I yeah. mean, the, the professors who are in, involved have done a lot. You know, even from this article, you can see that they have a lot of classroom space. They have a lot of uh, de- the professors and, and faculty from across the disciplines, they've partnered with a whole mess of, of, of companies and other institutions in the community. So there's a lot of things that they've done to make sure that this works. Even as at the end of the article, the, some of those faculty members involved do express like concern because it's, it's time consuming, right? So kudos to the ones who are doing it. it takes a certain amount of willingness to rethink teaching and thumbs yeah. up to those individuals Absolutely who are right. willing to take the plunge and so on and so forth. If there's an initial distinction we want to make, it's certainly about the fact that there is a distinction between problem-based learning and project-based learning. And a lot of this is more project-based learning, it sounds to us, than yeah. it is problem-based learning. And there's nothing wrong with project-based learning, they're just not exactly the same thing as problem-based learning. They're two very valuable approaches. But the difference is, in project-based learning, there's an outcome. There's a, usually a material outcome or, or something to that effect. So right. project-based learning would be designing a drone. And project-based learning might also be, and, it, and the line can get blurrier between the two, where you are, let's say, proposing a certain solution or an actionable solution to homelessness within a community, if there's an actual end to that where you are implementing something, we're trying to get something implemented. Let's say that we are going to work with local businesses to uh, to at least make sure all of the homeless have clothes. That didn't come out of the article. I'm just saying that hypothetically. That turns into more of a project, whereas problem-based learning is more where you're only contending with things in the abstract world. So what might we do with racism in our culture? There's not going to be a outcome. There's not going to be an actionable thing that people are going to go and do on a local level necessarily with that kind of problem. You're looking at it more globally. Again, there's no criticism here at all. I'm just creating a distinction between what's project-based learning and what's problem-based learning. Yeah, and I think that is an important distinction to make, though. If there is a broad stroke critique that I'd like to make about this, and all these X-Labs that are emerging, again, this broad stroke critique falls under the broad stroke praise. But it's that the emphasis is being placed on innovation. And innovation is important, and we need people who can innovate. But so many people are not going to go on out of college into careers where the primary thing they really need to do is innovate all of the time. They need to be able to problem solve. Yes, they need to be able to think critically. They need to do a lot of things, but not innovate in the sense that these X labs are creating innovation, where you're always producing something new as a result of your efforts. And there are some people who have tracked back this weight that's being put on innovation now to Silicon Valley. 
and how a lot of entrepreneurs were able to go out and create these new businesses, these tech businesses, based on what certainly were absolutely innovative ideas. But these X-Labs have emerged out of this concept that innovation itself is such a needed driving force. And I think that it is important. Certainly, there's no question about it. But I think that there are a lot of presumptions being made about the value of innovation that's not paying enough attention potentially to some of the other aspects of educational growth or critical thinking as we think about it. Well, I think that's a really interesting point you make. And so let me see if I'm hearing you like working under the assumption that a rough definition of innovation in this context is something along the lines of developing a new way to do things, a new way to think of things, a way that may be better than the other ways out there. And that certainly takes critical thinking. It takes creative thinking to an extent. And there are these elements to this kind of innovation that essentially aim toward this sort of newness or uniqueness or creativity. And what I hear you saying, though, Steve, is that there isn't necessarily going to be that kind of ongoing open space for innovation in, quote, the real world. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're not innovating, right, but you still have to solve a problem and say, well, you, you have no space to innovate a new framework for dealing with homelessness. You have not how new or unique something is, but how you're able to navigate this particular problem given the set of circumstances that exist and might be unmovable. And Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of people going out of college and into work, I could list so many professions, nursing, or you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to go into business, and you're going to work at some level of business or marketing. You are not innovating in the sense right. that these X labs are fostering innovation. You might be problem solving a lot. You certainly need to be problem solving a lot. You need to be critical thinking a lot and so on. But you're not always embarked on the creation of something new, the creation of something different. You are working within other constructs that require other kinds of thinking. And I just don't want these notions of these X labs, which again, love them. They're great. We need more of them. But don't want these notions of these X labs and their emphasis on innovation to supplant and speak louder than the need for other kinds of critical thinking that's going to exist and problem solving that's going to happen for most people in what they're going to go on to do in life. Right. Just as an aside, I think you pretty much listed all the professions, right? You said marketing, business, lawyer, nurse. I think you oh, hit them all. Oh, no, no. Uh, athlete. Athlete. Right. That's okay. it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because it's professional athlete. Steve and Dave will be right back. In the meantime, they want you to know about the Critical Thinking Initiative faculty and student handbooks. They provide the only unified critical thinking system that is a pedagogy for you, a thinking method for your students, a means of assessment that foregrounds critical thinking, and a system that works for any discipline. With the Critical Thinking Initiative handbooks, your students will engage the subject matter of your course more meaningfully. You'll receive more thoughtful writing and discussion, and you'll help to cultivate the kind of thoughtful citizens essential for any strong democracy. To get the joint set right now at 20% off with free shipping, just use the discount code PODCAST at thecriticalthinkinginitiative.org. That's discount code PODCAST for 20% off and free shipping. Now back to Steve and Dave. Um, part of, of what the challenge in this article that faculty at JMU X-Labs has is this idea that, you know, if there's no textbook, if there's no test, if there's no right answer, well, what in the hell is a teacher supposed to do? In fact, the question is, what is the role of the instructor if he is no longer the authority in the classroom? 
And I think this is really pertinent because oftentimes faculty development, at least in our case, has to do with redefining the role of the instructor and helping them get to a point where they can start to challenge their kids further than this kind of multiple choice or we only go from a textbook type of thinking. I just want to read out a quotation that fills in some of those blanks. And this is a quotation from an article written by Richard Miller, who I believe still runs the graduate English or humanities program at, at Rutgers. I probably should have looked that up. I apologize. And he says this, quote, the professor's role in this new digital learning environment is not to play the part of the master of content. That's the first part of his quotation. And I think that's essentially what they're getting at here is like, you are no longer master of content. You're not just, and, and a lot of people have said this in a much earlier than 2016, but it can't be said enough and thought about enough. Freire said it a long time ago, and there are a few others even maybe before Freire, yep. that it wasn't necessarily about the teacher-student relationship shouldn't be, you know nothing and can't think about anything, and I will give you just a little bit to think about, and don't think about it other than memorize it and spit it back to me. Miller is contending with, you know, what a teacher does when a student can literally Google anything at any point in, in their lives. And he says, the professor's role in the new digital learning environment is not to play the part of the master of content. It is to be the master of resourcefulness. In this role, the teacher models how to think in the face of an endless torrent of information, most of which is nothing more than the noise of self-publication and self-promotion. And so I think he does a really good job of distinguishing exactly where we all as teachers to some extent stand. Now that it's not just card catalog, it's not just there's this textbook and no student can get that anywhere else. There are a limitless amount of information is at their fingertips. And so what do you do? And, you know, these X labs are a good example of what Miller's talking about, which is we, we, we are not in control of the content now. We have to be the thinking models. We have to be the resource guides. We have to be able to help students start to think about this stuff themselves rather than tell them when they've thought a good thought or not. Right. I mean, information, thanks to the information age, thanks to the internet, to a degree, right, is no longer the most valuable commodity in education. It right, certainly right. doesn't have the value that it used to have for two reasons. One, because it's so available. Second, because there's so much of it that what becomes more important is the actual ability to sift through it and discern it and think about it. Right, exactly. At the Critical Thinking Initiative, we're interested in cultivating the role of the instructor as a guide because the research bears it out. Students now don't need to be tested in you know that multiple choice way. They need to develop a strong metacognitive framework for navigating their world. They're not always problem solving by coming up with something completely new. They're having to sift through a whole mountain of potentially bad information to get to some good information and be able to evaluate it as such and move on it. So. Yeah, an ethical decision isn't going to come up with something new and innovative. You have to choose an ethical right, model. Right. And, and, and reasoning is critical for that. And, and we need that kind of reasoning that applies to so many different things, not just ethics, but where there's no product. There's no new innovation at the end of that. Right, exactly. I mean, and that's something that's tricky too. And I understand where the JMU people are coming from. The kind of innovation they're talking about are these project-based experiences. I mean, if a student has never had that kind of experience before, and a lot of the students that are quoted in this article would, you know, seem to be suggesting that. And we know from our own research and experience that not a lot of students are necessarily able to get this kind of experience or opportunity, then the project is a really good way of doing it. 
And let's take our hats off to them. They recognize this. And the article says, college students don't lack ambition or creativity, professors here say, but the education system has trained them to think within existing boundaries and frameworks. If you put them in charge of figuring out what they need to learn, they're willing to wrestle with uncertainty, challenge themselves, and work long hours to find answers. And that is... Not new news. I mean, that's all been well-established in the research on problem-based learning already, but it's good to hear it here. And it's good that these people at JMU are putting students into these constructs and seeing exactly what we knew they were going to see, which is that students are eager to engage these wicked problems and draw on resources and be problem solvers and so on. So that's wonderful to hear it going on and see it manifesting. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's always good to see new outcomes to support those older outcomes. Like like you said, they, you know, the research has been going on for quite some time, but anytime we can see this resonating, that's always great news. On the other hand, if I could venture into a point where I would take some critique with it, and it's unfair because I don't know fully enough of what goes on there, but the article does mention that they build a lot of their construct around process of design thinking. And I don't think we've talked about this much. I don't want to overstate this. Design thinking can be a useful model for approaching a problem. And and those of you who don't know what design thinking is, you can look it up. Any Google search will show you the five steps and there will be 42 different diagrams that will come up on design thinking. Yeah, Uh, there are a lot of iterations of those five basic steps. Yeah, and it's fine. It's absolutely fine. There have been a lot of critiques of it also. First of all, in the sense that there are just so many other models out there. It was one model that was put forward of how to ideate and develop ideas. But there are so many other models for that as well. So many other flow charts that one could engage. I am also very partial to Natasha Jen's short video, and basically it's titled uh, Design Thinking is Bullshit. And she iterates a couple of great points about how there's no real critique process and how there's a push towards prototyping, how real designers need what she calls just a tremendous amount of messy evidence, quote unquote, messy evidence, Mm -hmm. which is a term I really like. There are also all kinds of other problems with design thinking with respect to collaboration and where brainstorming has been shown to be a very flawed process often. And it's very often a lot better just to let individuals go off and venture out in different directions and so on. And again, I want to point out, it's not that design thinking is necessarily particularly bad. I'm not saying that at all. It's just that I think it's given too much weight and it's gotten too much popularity as one particular path towards the creation of something new, as opposed to so many of the other flow charts that are available for that or models or messy processes that are out there for the same kind of idea. Again, this is a limitation on our part because we just can't see into the JMU process enough. The article says other campuses have maker spaces, boot camps, and entrepreneurship programs often designed to fuel startups. At JMU, however, the focus is on the education process itself. And so I, I would be very interested in hearing about how they use design thinking in terms of the educational process. So that leads us into this last overarching concept or question that pertains to the idea of education. What are the educational outcomes? How are they assessing them? What are they really aiming for? in terms of this lab, if it isn't necessarily, quote, innovation, or if it isn't necessarily like a finished working project. So I think, Steve, you have that moment that can start us off. Yeah. The article says, 
Quote, if defining and teaching innovation is difficult, assessing it can be even more challenging. Instead of relying primarily on tests, papers, and quizzes, many JMU XLab courses have started using Learning Record, which attempts to capture both what and how students learn. The portfolio style assessment system requires students to record their progress at least twice a week, focusing on what they did and what they learned from it. A student might write about the challenges of effective teamwork, an interview she conducted, or some research she did and how to fit it into her project. Ludwig says that one way to measure students' development is to see how many pivots they make over the course of a semester in their exploration and analysis of a problem, end quote. So that, that raises a lot of questions right. there's, for us. There's a lot of different things that we see in here. And again, like this is not necessarily something that anybody is really fully solved. And this is something that I think we're always thinking about. So for instance, like the first thing that, that comes to, to my mind is this idea of measuring student development is to see how many pivots they make over the course of the semester. So in this scenario, we would want to see that a student is not going to oversimplify their project or continue to double down on an idea that they think is the right one, even as they start to see it fall apart and be able to pivot towards like another plan. Right. On the other hand, merely the act of pivoting isn't really necessarily a sign of progress or thoughtfulness in itself. It is change, but I don't know exactly what that's telling. Well, it's such an interesting concept because first and foremost, we want to be able to see our students say, this isn't working. I'm going to try something else. But what exactly are we then taking from that, right? If we can see something isn't working, is that because there's like a lot of smoke pouring out of it? Or is it because we clearly can't get like these close to this population in this amount of time, I'm assuming that most students would be able to see that something wasn't working or note a dead end and then pivot. Fine. But what is the development? And what I would want to find out is, are they tracking the development and strengthening of some metacognitive framework right? for this? It's like not only that I, I see this as a dead end, but do I understand why? Can I articulate that? If I'm problem solving, if I'm running a team, can I articulate why this is a dead end? Do I understand why I'm pivoting to this? Is it just plan B or is it plan C? Because we now know that we can sort of see that plan B is not going to work either. And your point about the metacognitive framework is equally what I would apply back to the question of their learning record. Merely having students write some kind of reflection can sometimes be very valuable. It also can be vacuous. Obviously, we're partial to our critical thinking method as a way to foster these metacognitive moves and deeper reflection, as well as to assess how students are thinking their way through a process based on evidence and evaluation and so on. But that aside, it does raise questions. They might be doing a masterful job with it. Let's be clear about that because this is just giving us a synopsis of what's going on. So we don't want to give any impression here that we're necessarily feeling as though they're flawed in this. It's just raising questions for us as to really what's grounding that assessment of that reflection. Right. And if I were just going to forward your extend your idea, I would say, hey, listeners, if you're interested in this project-based learning or problem-based learning, like one of the things that you really want to focus on is, is how are you going to assess your students in terms of their thinking, in terms of the development of that metacognitive process? because JMU is right on and these X-Labs are right on that like sometimes like the project is not going to work out and point of project or problem-based learning isn't necessarily to come up with something that works. And what we say when we do faculty development is that it's better to be smarter than right. And so, yeah, maybe there is a drone at the end of this and that drone flies into space as it was supposed to and that problem has been solved. But if the drone doesn't fly into space, that's not necessarily a failure of the class. But then what are you measuring, right? right. And one of the things that you want to measure is a certain amount and ability to understand why and how it failed. 
and to what extent student can articulate questions that come out of it and what are future concerns and is and, there evidence and, attached to that I right and if i can build on that then you're also assessing and this is where it comes back to our conception of thinking but what you have to be able to assess is the thinking process because look let's say the goal is to create this better drone and the students come up with this better drone and you say well how'd you come up with a better drone or like well we accidentally this thing fell onto that thing and it worked and so we have a better drone and that's good there are plenty of scientific discoveries that have happened sort of quasi by accident or what have you like lucite was developed entirely by accident you have been waiting for six years to pull out that fact right well, i'm assuming that you have been waiting for a long time i've been waiting my entire right. life steve perlman lucite fact in his back pocket he is now a free man how many people knew that he lucite has, was developed he has by used accident? it it is done didn't mean it was real i just assumed that like i was just taken aback by like how quickly well you the other it. example i was gonna go is viagra it was you know discovered right. because they were trying to find a cure for baldness. Yeah, no, that's right. They yeah. were just, yeah, that's right. And I was just going to lie my way through it and just start rattling things off. The airplane, atom bomb, frozen TV dinners. All by my, accident. Microwave, all by accident. No thinking involved in any of these. <laughs> So we're look, we're trying to say the fact that something comes out of this process that works doesn't necessarily mean that a substantive amount of quality thinking went into it. A substantive amount of quality thinking could go into something that doesn't work at the end of this process as well. How are we assessing the thinking that's going on in this process? along the way. And again, there's no presumption here that at JMU, they don't have a, a method of approaching this. We just don't know. It's just raising the question for us here. And they do mention that they have multiple ways of assessing students, including, uh, I believe they mentioned that there's National Science Foundation critical thinking test is used. And then the Torrance test of creativity are the two that I think the article mentions. And we have some experience with them. And I think that's just for another discussion entirely. But when I see this kind of project, the first two things run through my mind are, wow, that's so awesome that they were able to make, get that up and running. And then, wait a minute, I want to see you know what to what extent right. there are these outcomes. And I'm concerned about and again, there's other things here that are for another time. There are issues of transfer, of learning that yeah. I think we can get to in another yep. podcast and some other things. But those are always the two things. One, that's just awesome. And two, now that it's awesome, let's can I ask some questions about assessment? Because that's kind of where we are. Yeah, and it is awesome. And I think one of the best ways to also talk about and demonstrate that is a quote from Ludwig, who's talking about what the students say. And she says, the confidence they build from trial and error seems to have a pretty big effect because they see that a failure isn't a life failure. I mean, that's a critical lesson. We talk about it's grit huge. in previous podcasts and growth mindset and so on. And those kinds of lessons are things that colleges should be fostering in students a lot more. And so if all the students are getting out of this is the notion that they can fail at attempting to create a bunch of things, but it's not a reflection of them as being a failure and that to redouble their efforts and go forward, it's great. So there are lots of great things about this. There should be more of these excellent labs around. We have some questions about it and, and would love to see more problem-based learning in other areas of education yeah. that don't result in projects and for those to get as much recognition as these sorts of things, but more power to them. And maybe we can, I don't know, maybe if somebody gets this to them, we can yeah, follow no, up with them or I, that, something like that. That's what that. I wanted to say. Like anybody out there who's listening to this from JMU, at JMU, invite them to get in touch with us because I, I would love to get them on the podcast and, and just and rap. And no offense to the inventor of Lucite. I mean, look, things, no, look you, you still need, did it. You still did it. it. You did it. We needed it. Now we have it. End of story. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. Got questions about critical thinking? Questions about pedagogies related to critical thinking? 
questions about writing, reading, grading, or anything else in the critical thinking realm, contact Steve and Dave at info at thecriticalthinkinginitiative.org with your questions or your feedback about the podcast. Thanks for listening.